Good morning, and thank you for joining us for our latest TRADOC Leader Professional Development Discussion. I'm Sarah Houck, a Public Affairs Specialist for the TRADOC Communication Directorate, and I will be your moderator for today's event. Today's discussion is going to focus on sexual assault prevention, which is very timely, being that April is Sexual Assault Awareness and Prevention Month. Joining our discussion today is the very talented spoken word artist, Mr. Edward Wilson, better known as Obi West. Obi is a retired Army veteran who has continued to serve through his performances that are centered around this very important topic. Welcome, Obi. Thank you for having me. Joining me here in the studio as the host today is Major General Lonnie Hibbard, the Commanding General for the Center of Initial Military Training. And I believe this is your first time joining us for one of these events, sir. It's a pleasure to have you. Well, thank you, Sarah. It is my first time here, and I look forward to the presentation. The first time I met Obi was in Washington, D.C. during a senior leader conference where he gave his perpetrator's perspective poem. This widely known poem has been incorporated into sexual assault training throughout the military. It was also recognized by the Department of the Army for the Major General Keith L. Ware Communications Award, earning first place for the long-form production video. By using this modernized method of speaking, he has creatively designed a training outline that is impactful and attractive to all audiences. So thank you for joining us, Obi, and sharing your talents and message with our audience. It is a pleasure to have you here, and we're excited to hear your performance on such an important topic. Before we get started today, I wanted to remind everyone in the audience that we want you to be part of this discussion. If you have any questions throughout the event, drop it into the comments section of the Facebook feed or the watch page wherever you're tuned in at today, and we'll try to get them answered. If we aren't able to get to them today, we will get answers to them on our social media channels in the near future. And with that, I'll turn it over to Obi, who has a great performance and discussion created for us. Obi? Thank you. I appreciate the warm introduction. I just want to make sure that you can hear me and see me loud and clear before I get started. Thanks for joining us. Okay, great. I am a strategic leader. Every day I walk with the weight of this nation on my shoulders. I will not forfeit nor fold over. I develop standard. My vision becomes the prescription for subordinate lenses. Where I place emphasis becomes their mission. So. If I don't make it important, it's never imported into their regiment. And so I vow to apply a forceful tone to initiatives that are integral to a growing force. I also understand in order for us to fight effectively, camaraderie must be the cornerstone to a rock steady army. And sexual attacks will cause camaraderie to explode like kamikaze because brothers and sisters in arms don't act like brothers and sisters after being disarmed by abuse. Internal feuds are of no use to us and it's a dishonor for self-inflicted damage to sow discord within our court. We would not be crumbled by internal war and I have been entrusted to eradicate such cases. I am a strategic leader held it at high regard, but still grounded enough to connect with the root of the issue. Pain inflicted on the most junior enlisted will still sit high on my priority list. And sexual misconduct will procreate hate, creating enemies within our ranks. And when attacked, a survivor's visceral reaction is to extract 
detached from the mission, creating a missing link within our chain. And then the chain reaction is a rash of bad actions. So as a strategic leader, I vow to be proactive in attack, attacking this epidemic. The goal is to get in front of it before it pushes us backwards, combat the predator's tactics with modern day warfare, proofed and useful to the modern day warfighter. And our conductors will be empowered to train with the impact of a locomotive. And I will be fearless and never afraid to address an issue with the same tenacity as a ticked off howitzer. I am a strategic leader. Rape culture within our columns and rows will be canceled based on the doctrine that I endorse. I will open up my doors to feedback for the force and best practices will be used to improve our tactics. I am the spearhead responsible for putting a spear in his wicked animal. I will see to it that policies and procedures are airtight and that implementers are impartial when prosecuting. This disease will not beat us. Leaders, hear my guidance. I am a strategic leader. My mouth and tongue are just tools that I use to talk, but I will communicate through my actions. So much so that I am convinced that if every soldier looked like me, this problem will be defeated. I am a strategic leader. I'm a leader at the core. And I've been called to police my peers if they appear to be wavering and support my subordinates with the same intense consistency that I expect to be supported. And never abort the mission until the opposition is obliterated. I I'm a strategic leader, and I understand that greatness starts with clear guidance. I possess and will provide that guidance. I understand that executable instruction is the instrument needed to produce a soundtrack for victory. I possess and will provide that instrument. With the power bestowed in me, I will see to it that our executors are armed with the weapons needed to execute this target. I am an auxiliary. Subordinate leaders will plug into me for power. My priority is the men and women who have volunteered to carry out our mission. I am a strategic leader. So to formally introduce myself, my name is Edward Wilson, artist named Obi West. I'll give you a brief background of who I am, which, um, which explains why this is important to me. I grew up in Los Angeles, California, a very violent neighborhood, and also grew up in an abusive household. So there's violence outside, and then there's abuse in the house. So... As a child, I'm, I'm met with the challenge of watching this guy abuse this woman. And while he's helping this abused woman up, he's saying, I love you. And she's saying, I love you too. So I'm met with the challenge of having to define love as a child. Fast forward 17 years old, I joined the Army. 10 years into the Army, I'm stationed at Fort Hood, Texas, and I learn about poetry. And instantly, it becomes my primary form of expression. It becomes my voice box, my liberation. So all the things that I experienced prior to, I started to express those things through poetry. So my disdain for abuse came out through poetry. Thus the reason I'm here today and why I do what I do the way I do it. So that's a brief background about myself. And today what I want to do is I want to hold a very down-to-earth, candid conversation about sexual assault and harassment, but from a different angle. Normally we approach it head on. We talk about the issue head on. This time I want to approach it from a leadership standpoint and just talk about how human behavior, how influence affects human behavior, right? As Afra mentioned, and in saying this, this uh, I'm, I'm sure there's probably a, a lot of uh, civilians on the line. So this, this presentation particularly has a lot of military references, but 
I'm sure most of the civilians are either prior service or you've been around it so long at this point, your life is practically an acronym. So you'll you, you understand what I'm talking about. But I just want to lend a lot of perspective. I'm not here to inundate you with slides, with data or with um, statistics. I just want to lend a perspective, a different way to look at some of the same things you may already know, right? As aforementioned, I grew up in Los Angeles, California. So when I joined the military, I was pretty much composed of all the principles that I needed in order for me to survive in Los Angeles. They didn't quite align with what I needed in order for me to survive in the Army. I had to be reshaped. The first three years in the Army, I stayed in trouble because I was approaching everything the same way I approached it in L.A. Complete honesty. The first time I saw an alpha roster, I was I was stunned. Like, why aren't people selling this? Where I'm from, people pay money for Social Security numbers. So my mentality was completely warped, and I had to completely be reshaped in order for me to function in the United States Army. So now anyone who's above me, anybody senior, if I'm an E2 and they're an E3, they become my roadmap to success. How do they look? And that gives me permission to look that way because I want what they've obtained. If they're a sergeant and I'm an E3, how do they look? And that gave me permission to look that way because I want what they obtained. So I'm looking at people as a roadmap to who I wanted to be, right? And we're all familiar with with um, direct guidance. We know what direct guidance is. Direct guidance is I say this and you do that. It's just straightforward, cut and dry, direct guidance. I want to talk about indirect guidance. Some of the hazards of indirect, one of the hazards of indirect guidance is a lot of times we don't know we're giving it. And when we're a certain way and we don't know that our way, the way we show up every day physically and the way we show up as a person can be guidance or permission to be for another person that can be extremely dangerous, right? If we knew that, we may change what we're doing or we may stick to what we're doing. Prime example, I was in Korea and I'm standing in formation for a change of responsibility ceremony. And we're waiting for the brigade commander to show up and we're standing in formation and we're waiting and we're at rest and we all have on our berets. The berets is the ceremonial headgear for this ceremony. And we have our PCs in our pocket. So the brigade commander pulls up, his driver opens the door, he steps out of the car, boom, he has on a PC. Instantly, the individuals in charge of those formations turned around and told everyone, take off your beret, put on your PC. We need to look like the brigade commander. On impact, the way he showed up became our direct guidance, unbeknownst to him. It was probably just a clear oversight. He's busy. He has somebody managing his, his calendar. He was doing something else. And he said, hey, sir, we got to go. Where are we going? We're going to a change of responsibility ceremony. Such and such is switching out. Oh, it's going to be a great day in the field artillery. And he jumps up, he jumps in the car, and then he heads to the formation. His beret's probably on his desk. And that slight oversight became our direct guidance. So how you show up, what you do, can easily and subconsciously become somebody else's direct guidance or permission to be. My first duty station, I'm standing in formation. Monday morning, right before motor stables, and they open the ranks. They want to have an open ranks formation so they can expect our uniforms. Squad leaders go down to squads, then the platoon sergeants follow the squad leaders, and one guy uniform balled up. And I remember we had a battalion commander, a little short guy. Everything about this guy was exceptional. His, his, his leadership, the way he spoke, everything about him to me at that time was exceptional. The only thing is he refused to knock the wrinkles out of his uniform. His uniform was always balled up and it was known to everyone. So a platoon sergeant approaches this kid in formation. He asks him, he says, hey, listen, your, your uniform. And he gets on him about his uniform and the kid responds. Why are you so hard on me about my uniform when our battalion commander uniform is always wrinkled? And I'll never forget the look on this platoon sergeant's face where he had no way to reply. 
So not only did the battalion commander, the way he showed up became that kid's permission to be, but it also made it very difficult for the platoon sergeant to enforce a standard when a standard barrier looked a certain way. And I guarantee you the battalion commander knew that. If he knew that that was his influence, he would probably never came to work again with another uniform that looked that way. So we have to be very, very cognizant of the power of indirect influence. Self-presentation, moral posture is huge. I don't know how many PETA people we have on the line. Is the chat open? Can, are individuals able to type in the chat? Um, it's not, the chat is not open, but we do have the ability okay. for individuals to ask questions via our watch page and Facebook if there are. Okay, I'll, I'll stop in between, at certain points, I'll stop and, and, and open it up for questions and see if there's any, so people aren't forced to remember their questions. But PETA, I'm not sure how many PETA people we have on the line. This, this is an example of why moral posture is very important. PETA, the, the Organization for Animal Rights, right? You don't wear, you don't carry leather wallets or leather purses, don't eat animal products, PETA. So I go to face-to-face -face presentations and I always ask, how many PETA people do we have here? And no one raised their hand. Seldom do we have a, a person who's an advocate of PETA. And then I say, well, PETA's hiring, right? PETA needs someone. You ever see the person on the corner? And they're pop locking and they're flipping the little sign and it says tax center over here, right? Peter's hiring and they need someone to flip their sign that points towards their office. And they're paying $500 an hour for five hour work days. That's $2,500 a day. You work all day, you have on your Peter suit. At the end of the day, you give your suit back. They give you $2,500 and you're going about your way. How many people's taking the job? And then the hands shoot up. We're taking the job. $2,500 a day, I can change my life. I'm taking a job. And then I ask, well, how many people, after you get the $2,500 and you give your Peter suit back, how many of you are likely to talk to somebody about animal rights when you get off work? Zero. That's the difference between having a professional attachment to something or a moral attachment to something. With sexual assault and harassment, it can't just be a professional attachment. When it's purely a professional attachment, we have the tendency to let that attachment go the second we take the uniform off. We absolutely have to figure out a way to establish an immoral attachment to this thing. That's also the difference between appointment orders and an advocate. When you purely have somebody on appointment orders just because that person seems like they can handle multiple tasks, you may have someone who don't have a moral attachment to this thing, and they may very well become the problem the second they take off the uniform. So we have to figure out who the advocates are. Who are the individuals who have a moral attachment to this thing, and that's who ends up on our appointment orders. So it's very, very important that our moral posture shows that we have a an actual moral attachment to this. And that it's, it's shown in how we ask about it. We'll talk about it a little bit later, how we ask about, how we inquire about the program. It shows whether or not we're attached to this morally. And then it starts to give people b below us permission to be. Okay, well, I see my senior, my brigade commander, my battalion commander, they handle this based on a 350-1 requirement. They don't really have a moral attachment to it, and they've made it where they are, so I can treat it that same way. Another form of indirect influence, organizational influence, very, very important. How frequent are we, how are we handling these cases when they come up? Sexual assault and harassment. Are people in our organizations comfortable enough to report when they do report? How are the reports handled? That's very, very important. People who are predators, they watch and they watch and they see how these things are being handled so they can figure out how they have permission to conduct themselves within that organization. My daughter, when she was seven years old, made the worst mistake of her life. She came to me and she said, Daddy, listen to this. It was a YouTube thing she was watching. Some silly little kid on YouTube 
made a video highlighting the different types of parents. This is the fun-loving parent. This is the killjoy parent. This is the boring parent. And she said, Daddy, that's the parent that you and Mama resemble. It was the parent who always throws out threats but never enforces them. This is what she told me at seven. Her life has been ruined since that point. But what she pretty much told me at seven years old, she was able to acknowledge that she can do what she wanted to do. A threat was going to follow that, but it was never going to be enforced. That gave her permission to act a certain way because she saw that threats weren't being carried out or the things that we said repercussions weren't being carried out. Same thing within our organizations. When we have people who are in our organizations who want to be a certain way, they're looking to see what the tolerance is for their intended behavior. And based on the culture we create, that gives them permission to be. Is there any questions or comments before I go on to the next topic? Um, Obi, we do actually have a question from our watch page. Um, okay. The audience member has asked, do you talk about using uh, leaders' actions as a roadmap? What actions should we be modeling from our leaders to lead us to a roadmap of preventing these kind of um, adverse behaviors such as sexual assault and abuse? Okay, that's a, that's a two-part answer for me. And one, I don't think that there's a blanket answer to that question, but the two parts that came to mind for me immediately is the question was, what should we? I think we should be modeling those behaviors that seem most he seem healthiest in most situations, right? We have certain people that respond to certain type of authority. Um, we have certain people who reject certain types of authority. So our leadership styles may vary depending on who we deal with. So if we see a leader who is just tyrannical all the time. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It absolutely pulls someone out of the fight. But then we see another leader who's able to adjust their leadership style based on who they're dealing with. We may want to go with the one who has the ability to be flexible, flexible in their leadership style. So there's just a million different things that leadership is composed of. And a lot of it has to do with who we're naturally made up of. If I'm not naturally an aggressive person and I'm trying to model myself after an aggressive person because I think that's the only thing that works, I'm probably going to be an ineffective leader. So what should we model ourselves after? One is whatever is closest, most closely innate to who we are naturally and what seems to always have the healthiest outcome. Um, I think that that's broad, but I think the basis, that's, that's how I would approach that. I hope that makes sense. Absolutely, thank you. Thank you, Obi, for that. Um, these are some really great discussions. Um, we've, been, we've been talking about culture in the Army and how we need to kind of reshape that um, to kind of push out these behaviors that don't support our core values. So my question for you, Obi, on this, on leader influence, is how do we encourage leaders to know that they are in that limelight for our soldiers all the time? Because you mentioned the indirect influence. Some people may not know that they're being watched. So how do we encourage leader behavior to change? Or how do we educate our leaders to be the best example they can be just walking down the street for our soldiers to help uh, tackle these much bigger issues like sexual assault and harassment? I, I think we're doing it right now. I think as it stands, exactly what we're doing, talking about these discussions, adding different perspective to information that somebody may already knew, but add a different perspective to it. And these discussions on a repetitive basis will, will bring that awareness. There may be somebody online right now that is in a position of influence that didn't know that 
their influence goes well beyond their direct guidance, who now knows because of discussions that are being held. So I just think it's continuous and aggressive discussions uh, of this point. And, and in this presentation, I'll go over some suggestions on how to train this topic. And I think that may address that question as well. Thank you. No problem. Um, next, I want to discuss the uh, importance of a basic component, right? In every operation in life, there's a basic component. Actually, I was I was contacted by Mr. Oatmeyer and the G6. I'm guessing it was the G6, considering he was talking about connection. They were telling me the difference between having a Wi-Fi connection and a hardwire connection and the benefits of that hardwire connection. And it made complete sense, right? With the Wi-Fi connection, I don't care. I can have the, the most expensive LCD screen, the most expensive webcam, the most expensive microphone, all the most expensive peripherals. But if the Wi-Fi is interrupted and the connection goes out, all the rehearsals, all the train, everything that we did leading up to this is null and void. So all the advanced technology and everything else is null and void if we don't have the basic component of connection. That basic component for us is trust and respect. Basic training we ran through buddy set, buddy go, right? It was a drill where you're in a combat environment and you have to advance to a point and it's two people and one person says to the other person buddy set and that tells the other buddy I have you covered so now you can safely run to your next point and get in position when that other person gets to position they say buddy set and then they say in the other person they letting the other person know I have you covered and they say buddy go and you continue this drill until you move forward covering the other person from fire and it's, it's seamless when you're in rehearsal but imagine being in a combat operation where your life is really dependent on that person next to you, covering you as you move forward. It's not training anymore. There's real bullets flying. And if I don't trust the person that's adjacent to me, I don't care how set buddy say he is, this buddy probably not going to go. So all that advanced training goes out of the window if I don't trust the person next to me. And if I'm the person that's set and I say I'm set and I'm giving the other person permission to go, if I don't trust, if I don't respect or have a high level of regard for that person, then my natural tendency to self-preservation, to protect myself, may override my ability to be selfless enough to protect this person. Whole operation is gone because of that basic component isn't there. The basic component of trust and respect is more important than advanced training. I've seen advanced training absolutely snuffed out by fear. I've been in a situation where I'm sitting in a Humvee first day downrange and I hear ting, ting, ting by my window, a small alarms fire hitting my window. Only thing protecting my head is a seven inch window and the 50 cal gunner in the hole. This guy drops down in the gun hole. He's sitting next to me and he looks over at the other rider, which is his battle buddy and his battle buddy said, hey, bro, you got to get back up there. He looked at him. They made eye contact. The gunner jumped back in the hole. He turned towards where the fire was coming from, and he returned fire. Do so you think that was advanced training, or is that his absolute regard for the look in his battle buddy's face? The advanced training only kicked in after his regard for his battle buddy gave him the courage to get back in the gun hole. Even in the absence of advanced training, the basic component of trust and respect is going to allow us to take care of each other. If you're a parent, and your child's out in the street and a car is coming with zero regard of how that car is going to impact your body, you're going to jump out into the street and grab your kid. It has nothing to do with advanced training. That's simply regard. So we have to make sure whenever we're talking about training, 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 that we're emphasizing the importance of respect and trust just as 
intensely as we're talking about training. We just can't talk about it whenever we talk about the warrior ethos, but we have to emphasize it at all times. And when we're talking about, a res talking about respect, we have to address the ambiguity of respect, the ambiguity of respect. I'm from Los Angeles, California. My father's from Jackson, Mississippi. This is the countryest man I know. And this man, whenever he talks to a woman, he addresses a woman with terms of endearment. Sugar, honey, boo-boo, gummy bear, pop-tart, whatever you can think of. These are the terms that he used. Down south, those terms of endearment are absolutely welcomed. It's not disrespect. It's not received or intended to be disrespectful. It's, it's called Southern hospitality. But where I'm from, Los Angeles, California, you only use those terms with someone who you're connected with in that space. If I'm romantically connected to you, if we share that capacity, we can share those terms. Anyone outside of that, I might be offended. So now you take these two individuals from these different cultures and you mix them into one place like the United States Army, you have an ambiguity as to what respect is. A guy once told me in Africa, him and his male friend, they interlock hands when they walk. This is how they walk, their hands interlocked. And it's just an indication of friendship, not an indication of sexuality. But if he comes to the United States and he meets an American or, or me and one of my friends walk and I'm grabbed their hand, they may take it the wrong way. I may have to fight that guy. So we absolutely must enforce the golden rule is treat others the way you want to be treated. Let's drill down a little deeper. If I treat you the way I want to be treated, I might be into some sick stuff. So you may be subject to some sick stuff. But if I take the time to learn who you are, learn what's important to you, learn your definition of respect and treat you based off of your definition instead of imposing my will on you, then we may have a different outcome. The sexual assault and harassment is embedded, is, is, is rooted in trust and respect. Every person with an accusation against them was not a predator. Every person with an accusation against them was not a predator, did not have the intent to perpetrate, but brought something from their culture, imposed it on someone else. It was miscommunication. Now, all of a sudden, something didn't feel right to a person who never, to someone else from a person who never had the intention to, to perpetrate. Another thing in regards to respect, there's a difference between respect of authority and respect of person. We all have these individuals who we work for, who we, we, we do what we have to do for our, in our best interest. I'm going to listen to what you tell me to do for my best interest. My best interest is my job, my comfort level at this, at this, um, at this job, me taking care of my family. That's my best interest. So I'm going to listen to what you tell me to do. I'm going to say, sir, I'm going to say, ma'am, I'm going to execute all the niceties. But if I ever saw you in the street away from this area, I probably wouldn't speak to you. If I saw you on the side of the road somewhere broken down, I'd probably keep going. So when you purely have a respect for authority, it's not enough to allow us to take care of each other. When I was in the military, I would see people walk past me. They look on my chest to see what the rank was. And they're looking to decide how they want to greet me or if they want to greet me at all. Do they want to say hi? Or if they, if they say hi, what level of enthusiasm are they going to say it? And I always notice people who are subordinate to me were most enthusiastic. Others, eh, hit and miss. That's a respect of authority. A respect of person means that regardless to whether we're in this uniform or not, you can be at the top of the mountain or the bottom of the barrel. I have a respect for you as a person, so my consideration and my assistance to you are never going to go away. That's what's going to allow us to take care of each other in social settings, where I see somebody else who I work with, and they say they're they extremely drunk, and they're acting in a way that's not favorable to them, or they're in a situation that may turn out bad. That's what's going to make me go grab this person and pull them out of that situation, is my respect for the person. And respect for person is normally developed through reciprocity. When you treat a person, when someone is being treated, when someone has a person who's superior to them, they know whether or not that person, they can sense whether or not that person has a regard for them as a person 
or whether or not my only interest in you is you doing what I tell you to say in order to accomplish this mission. But other than that, I have no concern. You can feel it. And then it's reciprocated. So we make we have to look around, look at the people adjacent to us, the people we're connected to, and ask ourselves, do I have respect for your authority or respect for your person? And that will let us know whether or not we're in a position to take care of the person who's next to us. Um, next thing I want, if I'm talking a little fast, excuse me, it's for the sake of time. I don't want to run out of time. Next thing I want to talk about, very, very important. How do we train this topic? How do we train this topic? 350-1, I'm hoping it's still 350-1. I don't, I don't want to be using all these military references that are irrelevant now, looking like the guy in the PX with a bunch of pins on his caps who's using all these outdated Army references. But I think it's still 350-1. It was a training rig when I was in, and it told us how to train. And most training is measurable by time. Is measurable by score. If I'm taking a PT test, if I execute this movement within this amount of time, I get this score. I do this many reps, I get this score. If I'm at the range and I hit this many targets, I get this score. So it's trained by time and it's trained by data. Or it's measurable by time, but it's trained by data. I can teach you how to get a proper sight picture by data. I can teach you proper trigger squeeze by data. I can teach you math through data. And it's measurable by score. The benefits of training is we're able to assess our inefficiencies and our strong points during the rehearsal. During the rehearsal, if I take a diagnostic, I can figure out what my weak points are, get better. When it's time for the real thing, I'm prepared. If I'm out firing, I can figure out where my weak points are, get better. And when I go back, I'm prepared. Now, when I go downrange, I'm prepared. I know how to fire. There's no rehearsal when it comes to sexual assault and harassment. The only time we can recognize our inefficiencies is right before, during, and after a victim has been claimed. So we can't train those the same. Sexual assault and harassment cannot be trained just by data. There absolutely has to be an emotional aspect to the training when it comes to sexual assault and harassment. I was in a class where there were some sharp professionals. People were training to be sharp professionals. There were 18 who volunteered to do this. And I went through and I asked each one, why are you here? What made you volunteer for this? And 17 out of 18 were sexually assaulted or they were connected, closely connected to someone who was sexually assaulted, saw the damage that it caused and wanted to do what they can to help anyone else from having to experience that. One person didn't have either of those experiences and simply volunteered. 17 out of 18 had emotional attachment. What that tells me it seems like if that's a sample of society, what that tells me is experiences is what makes this thing important. It's not just important because it should be, but someone's emotional connection is normally what has made this important. So how do we, within training, create that level of emotion without re-victimizing? There's a difference between a trigger and re-victimizing. Every trigger isn't re-victimizing. And I think one of the ways that we fall short sometimes in training is try to remove all the triggers, remove every trigger. And in doing that, when we remove all the triggers, we remove the emotion, right? I'm a junk food fanatic. I devour anything that got sugar on it, I'm devouring it. But I can read the nutritional facts on the candy bar that will tell me, hey, this is gonna make your teeth fall out and you're gonna die. And I will eat that candy bar while I'm reading nutritional facts because my body hadn't yet showed the outward manifestations of my vice. I've been eating reckless for years and my body and my health hadn't yet showed it. But if I go to the hospital and they diagnose me with diabetes and they tell me my life is on the line, instantly I'll change my diet because I've been emotionally impacted by that information. 
We do it all the time in relationships. We meet people. We want the relationship. We see the red flags, but we paint the red flags into pink hearts because we want the relationship. Later on, something happens and we're emotionally affected by it. We're hurt. Now we're trying to leave the relationship. We had the data in the beginning, but it wasn't enough. Until we attached the emotion to the data, it didn't become a call for action. So in order for this topic to become a call for action, we have to figure out how to attach the emotion to the data. We are emotionally driven individuals. Also in doing that, we have to figure out how to reapply lost definitions. Anytime there's something that's defined as a crime or something wrong, when that thing goes unchecked, it loses its definition. Example, in Army, we're big on grass, right? We love grass. Quickest way to get cussed out is to walk on grass on a military installation. So let's let's dub that grass harassment. That's what we'll call that grass harassment. And you have a person who's walking and they're trying to get to point B. And the closest, quickest way to get there is a straight line. So they walk across the grass and it goes unchecked. No one says anything. What are they gonna do the next day? They're gonna walk across that grass. What are they gonna do the next day? They're gonna walk across, then someone else is gonna see them doing it. And they wanna get to that same point B. Now they're gonna follow them across the grass. Now the damage of that unchecked infraction is gonna show in the grass by way of a dirt trail. A dirt trail is gonna form in the grass. And that dirt trail is the damage of our inaction. So now you see other people who walk it and that dirt trail means walkway. So now that damage has become consent for somebody else. Before you know it, that's a new pathway. So now the, the term grass harassment has been lost and the new name is that's a pathway. The damage created by our inaction has now become consent. So now let's put that in the realm of sexual assault and harassment. I'm standing somewhere in the office building. There's a copy machine there. Someone comes to use the copy machine, and I say something inappropriate. And the person I say it to, they just kind of look at me, give a nervous laugh, and they walk off. And somebody says to them later, hey, how did such and such, I heard them say that to you. And they say, uh, that's just men will be men. Now the term sexual harassment has went away, and the new definition is men will be men, which isn't a crime, which means no one's going to take any effort to do anything about it. But if right there on the spot, whenever I said that comment, that person or someone else, a bystander, says, hey, stop. You're completely, what you just said right now is grounds for sexual harassment. It's an unwanted sexual advance. So right now you have put yourself in a place in a position for an accusation to be brought up against you for sexual assault, sexual assault, sexual harassment. At that point, our definition has been reapplied to my behavior. One or two things. Either I was ignorant to the fact that that was harassment, but now I'm not. Or I was playing dumb in the hopes that everyone else was ignorant. Either way, both of those has been put by the wayside because now I know that everybody else is aware that what I'm doing is wrong. So if I do it again after that point, it's not because I didn't know. So we absolutely, and this is a daily thing, this isn't just through training, but we absolutely have to start reapplying definitions to some of these infractions because they've gone unchecked for so long that they've lost their definition. And that's something that we have to do on a daily basis when we're training this. Messaging. Messaging is very, very important. Before I go on to messaging, is there any, any questions, comments? Um, Obi, we do have a question from Facebook. Um, they are asking, with an organization, there's always a mission and a vision within an organization. So how do you blend your mission and vision with these kinds of new prevention strategies? How, how do you blend pre effective prevention strategies into a mission, or an organization's mission and vision? 
I'm going to regurgitate the question to make sure I understand. You're talking about the prevention strategies that I'm discussing now. How do we take this and incorporate it into an organization's mission? Absolutely, yes. Okay. I think we uh, we just reassess and we we try to figure out ways to be extremely versatile in how we hold the conversation. If we look back at how we've been holding a conversation about sexual assault and harassment over the years, it's been pretty consistent in the way we approach it. So we just have to assess what's been successful. Um, and I think I'm going to address that a little bit in messaging. We have to assess what's been successful and just figure out ways to be extremely versatile in how we hold the conversation. Perspective is, is huge. And there's a lot of people that act certain ways, not because they are bad people or they have intentions to do bad things, but the perspective that they have hadn't, prevent, hadn't pro provided them with another option. So when we figure out alternate ways to hold the conversation, we start to create more perspective, healthier perspective. And the more perspective you have on a topic, the more options you have as to how to approach that topic. And once we start giving people those options, I think we'll see a better outcome in how sexual assault and harassment is, is being addressed or handled. Um, I hope I addressed the question. We appreciate that. Okay. Messaging. Messaging is huge. Um, I'll give you an example. When I was in the military, I would go to these command and staff or staff call. The name would change depending on what type of organization I was in. But I would go to these meetings. And in the meeting, I was the property book officer. So I have an office. I have a directorate. And I'm responsible for answering questions that falls up under the, the, the realm of that, that, that job, right? So I walk in there, and I know who my leader is. And I know what question he or she is going to ask. So all week, I work in order to produce a product that's going to put me in a position to where I can answer those questions satisfactorily. Satisfactory. All week, that's my goal. Let me do what I need to do so when I get in here, I can answer these questions to standard. They can go on to the next directorate, and then I'm out of the way, right? So if I walk in that meeting as a SARC, and the person at the head of the table asks me, they say, where are we on our annual requirement? Translation, have we met the time requirement 350-1 has dictated on this thing? And then I say, yes, we, we met our four hours or our six hours. We did two this day, two this day, two this day. Okay, good. Next. Now all I'm doing throughout the week is I'm working towards making sure we meet that time requirement. Not the effectiveness of the training, but the time requirement. But if I'm the person at the head of the table and I ask questions like, how was the engagement? Was it natural engagement or did you have to stand there and say, hey, listen, nobody's going to lunch until I get five questions. And then people ask five silly questions because they wanted to go to lunch. Natural engagement is normally a telltale sign that there's, a, there's an interest. Was there natural engagement? Did someone come forward after the presentation? I've seen a lot of times when the presentations are consistently effective, it empowers the audience. And someone in the, in the audience who was afraid to say something about something before is now empowered and they come forward within a day or two or right after the presentation. So when they're asking questions of this nature, did we ask the audience, hey, listen, we've had video, we had lecture, we had all these different ways to present this topic. What have you all found most effective? And did we reshape those other areas so that they're just as effective as the ones identified? So when you ask these type of questions, now you're actually inquiring about the effectiveness of the program. So just in the way that the program is inquired about shows if there's an emotional attachment 
or if there's just a professional attachment. And then the person who's working for you, a lot of times they work towards satisfying your type of attachment. So how we ask about this topic is very, very important. Next, gender neutral. Society has developed this mentality that I've been in classes where civilian organizations who have given classes on domestic violence, sexual assault and harassment, and they have scenarios they've created to talk about certain things. And in every scenario, the man is the victimizer and the woman is the victim in every scenario. And society, and what that does is it, it subconsciously brainwashes people to believe that sexual assault is only a problem for women. So now as a result, men who have been sexually assaulted, they don't want to come forward. They don't want to say anything because no one believes it can happen. The definition of sexual assault in North Carolina, according to their law, is forceful vaginal penetration. Forceful vaginal penetration is the definition of rape in North Carolina, which implies a man in North Carolina can't be raped. So it's even embedded in the law. So we have to make it a point to be gender neutral when we address these topics. If I'm a man sitting in the back of the room and every slide has me as the predator, I'm probably going to feel more targeted than anything. And it's probably going to hinder my ability to get something out of the training because this whole training is about how to protect society from me. So it's very important that we're gender neutral. A suggestion is maybe when we create these scenarios, we use names like Shannon. I know men named Shannon. I know women named Shannon. And you use Shannon. And then later on in the training, you ask questions about Shannon. And you see how many people automatically assumed Shannon was a woman. And then that gives you a prime opportunity to instill the reality that male victimization is prevalent as well. But we have to be able to address this problem across the board. And we do that by being gender neutral. Also with language, zero tolerance. Zero tolerance is something we all push for. Um, I've seen the term zero tolerance translated in two ways. One way being extremely healthy, one not so much. If I'm a senior leader and I say zero tolerance and I'm telling my subordinate leaders, hey, listen, I have zero tolerance for this thing. I'm talking to people who whose report card is dependent on what I write on it. And I'm telling them I have zero tolerance. I've seen subordinate leaders translate this as a, listen, if this happens, the boss don't want to hear it. So let's figure out a way to handle this on our level so that it doesn't go up to him or her. And most times when that happened, it's to the demise of the person who came forward with the accusation. It's handled in a way to where it's kind of swept up under the carpet. Let's just try to fix it so it's not as loud because the boss says they have zero tolerance. So I can't take it up there and ruin my report card. That's not what the boss meant at all. I can tell you what the boss meant is we have zero tolerance for it, which means every time it happens, we're going to address it. How we address it is going to be dependent on the situation. But every time it happens, I want to hear it. It's never going to go unaddressed. That's zero tolerance. Right? I'm a National Geographic buff. I'm a, I'm a cat lover, so I hate hyenas. They always mess with the cats. But I see these lions in these territories, and as soon as they enter the area, it's full of prey. You hear a bird or a chimp in a tree chirping, chirping. They're warning everybody, lions are here. All the prey scatter, and now the lion's looking up at the tree like, why, why did you have to say something? That's exactly what we need in our organizations. We need individuals who every time it happens, they're going to raise the red flag. And I'm positive that's what leaders mean when they say zero tolerance. But we have to make sure in our language when we communicate that, that we're explaining to subordinate leaders, this is what we mean by zero tolerance. We don't mean hide it because I don't want to hear it. I mean, I want to hear it every time. Continuum on. 
before I move forward, is there any questions? Um, I think, Obi, what I have a question for you is, is that a lot of what you are discussing, discussing right now is making sure that our training is not just from a manual and is more emotionally driven. Now, how do you adjust training and fit more of that emotionally um, taking into people account people's different cultures like you said there are different perspectives of certain situations um, how when you bring individuals into the military do you approach everyone's emotional um, structure to ensure that we are training to effectively eradicate these behaviors? Because like you said, everybody has to have an emotional connection to this to effectively eradicate this. So how do you think that um, the Army or even all military should adjust their training for the, these individuals to really help get take care of these issues? I think in large, in the military across the board, I won't, I won't, I won't limit this to the military. I'll say in, in most organizations, whenever we talk about sexual assault and harassment, we have a a huge regard for anyone who may have been affected by this. And as a result of that, we don't want to do anything that may be re-victimizing. So in doing that, we remove some of the relevant language, language that has to be there in order to really drill down in understanding. We remove that language. We remove some emotional aspects. Like say we bring someone in who has had a, a real severe um experience with this and we bring these individuals in to talk we may limit the way that they talk about their experience because we don't want to be re-victimizing so i think one we have to identify the difference between a trigger and re-victimizing a trigger can be igniting or empowering and not be re-victimizing or it can be re-victimizing so if i if i was entering a crosswalk one day and I got smashed by a car. The light was green, but I entered the crosswalk, the car ran the light and I got smashed by a car within an inch of my life. Now when I get out of the hospital, I'm always hesitant to cross the street. If I'm standing somewhere and I hear somebody say something along the lines of, um, there's been a lot of cars, there's been a lot of people who have been hit by cars lately. We need to do something to see if we can fix that. Just that may be triggering to me. It may take me back to the time where I was hit by a car, but it may empower me and say, yes, I'm all in with that. Let's figure out what we can do to fix this. But if I hear somebody say, I mean, listen, if if you step out into the street, regards to whether it's green or not, if the car hasn't completely stopped and you step out there, then I, you probably kind of ask for it. At that point, it's re-victimizing because now you're belittling me. You're making me feel like what happened to me was my fault. So we have to figure out how to allow certain triggers without re-victimizing. But when we remove every trigger, we remove that emotional aspect from it. And then at that point, we were training purely by data. We're telling people statistics. This is how often this happens. This is how often this happens. And we know we become desensitized to things that happen on a regular basis. We can even look at school shootings. When these things first start happening, the world was in awe. Now people see a school shooting on the news and it's like another school shooting. We become desensitized by routines. So if all we're showing is statistics, we become desensitized. Oh, okay, what happened again? Until it becomes close to us. Did I address the question? You did perfectly, Obi. Thank you so much. Okay. Um, I think I have five minutes. So what I'll do is I'll talk about the continuum of harm real quick. And, well, I'll close on this. We have to do. We have to be able to in, in, enable 
the bystander. That's very, very important. Enabling the bystander. Prevention starts during the continuum of harm. Continuum of harm is a succession of acts that ultimately lead to the harm of something, right? So if I'm a person and I enter an organization and I have intentions on being a predator, I may look around and see whether or not my behavior is tolerated. I'll tell inappropriate jokes, see who tolerates it. And then I'll go to the next level and start being overly touchy, see who tolerates it until I can figure out a person who maps me to safety and then boom, that's the continuum of harm. Prevention happens during the continuum of harm. If I see any of those things happening, boom, I stop it right then. But in order for that to happen within our organizations, we have to empower the bystander. If I ask the seniorest person on this horn right now, if you were walking past a piece of trash on the ground and you walked past it and didn't pick it up, what's the chances a junior enlisted is going to say, hey, sir, ma'am, you saw that paper on the ground and you didn't pick it up? Probably zero. In the military, it's a rank structure. And we abide by that rank structure because we don't want to create any type of friction. And in doing that, we're not empowered to correct up. So that becomes a problem when it comes to sexual assault and harassment, because if that guy at the copy machine or that girl at the copy machine, woman who was making inappropriate comments, happens to be someone who's senior, now everyone in the room that's beneath them are likely not to say anything. So we have to empower the bystander. If I'm a sergeant and I'm sitting in a PX and a specialist walk past me with a uniform infraction, some first sergeant is going to come to me and say, hey, you just saw that kid walk past you. Why didn't you say anything? But are they going to do the exact same thing if a colonel walked by and I didn't say anything as a sergeant? And then when we're senior and we're corrected, we have to absolutely receive that. We have to understand that rank does not supersede right or wrong. Right or wrong is consistent regardless to the, the rank that the person obtained. So we have to make sure we're empowering bystanders. That's the only way that we're going to get to the prevention of this. So in closing, I just want to identify that this thing is a matter of morals. Sexual assault and harassment prevention is a matter of morals. It can't be viewed as a task. We tend to put tasks down at the end of the duty day. It has to be a desire. But when something is a desire, that desire is with us 24-7. So preventing this thing has to be a desire. So today's conversation was about how does personal influence build that moral posture to, we ha- to where we now we have the desire to take care of one of his- another and do what we can in order to mitigate these cases with sexual assault and harassment. So pending any questions, that's all I have. Um, I think we'll end with one more question that we did get from the watch page. Um, As an army, um, how do you recommend we effectively support our victims or survivors within our ranks? You kind of addressed it with the the triggers versus the re-victimization. So how do you um, encourage our leaders and those who may be our victims or survivors to be supportive and just make sure that we're treating those individuals with respect and dignity? Great question. I think that first starts by one, making sure that our advocates are the one who are on appointment orders, making sure that people who have extreme passion for this are the ones who are on appointment orders to act in that position. Um, That's one. Next thing, we have to realize the importance of peer to peer support. We have upper echelons of support like we have SARCs. We have um, even in civilian organizations, we have these corporations that support this. But the person who the survivor will never make it there if the peer, peer-to-peer support isn't there. So if my buddy comes to me to confide in me 
and I discount my buddy's allegations, I say, hey, well, I mean, what do you expect? You shouldn't have been over there that late. Oh, come on, man. You're a man. You can't be sexually assaulted. Hey, well, what did you have on during that time frame? That, the feeling of that rejection is going to stop them from ever going forward. So those upper echelon levels of support are null and void if the peer-to-peer support isn't there. So making sure our advocates, our uh, people on appointment orders are advocates, making sure the peer-to-peer support is there, and making sure that our organizations have a variety of options as to who can treat a certain thing, right? As patients, medical patients, we, we have a choice of who we want to be our doctors, what gender. I think our survivors should also have that choice. So if you make sure that your staff of sharp professionals, cyber professionals are composed of men, women, um, different multitudes of ranks, if we ensure that that's the case, we give our survivors an option as to where they're comfortable. If I'm a man and all my life I was raised by women, that's where I found my comfort and I've spent my whole life trying to impress men to no avail, then I'm probably not going to be comfortable going to see a man. Or if I have a different experience, I'm probably not going to be comfortable going to see a woman. But if you make a variety of supporters, provide a variety of supporters, now I have options. I think if we can do those three things, then we can we can do a great job of taking care of people who need our support. Perfect. I appreciate that, Obi, so much. And unfortunately, we are coming to the end of our event. And we just thank you for these great performances and discussions. Um, Obi, we appreciate your time and um, effort into these. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience before we sign off? Um, take care of each other. And, and thank you. Thank you from the bottom of everything in me for giving me the opportunity to stand or sit, sit before you today. Um, I hope it resonated and I hope a lot of people are in a better position to face some of the woes of society. And again, thank you. Absolutely. And thank you again for being with us today. Uh, General Hibbert, is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience? Yeah, I'd like to thank our audience for joining us today. And uh, thank you, uh, Obi, for being with us today. What an outstanding presentation. And Sarah, I'm looking forward to next month's uh, LPD and uh, as we talk H2F. Absolutely. We look forward to having you back next month, sir. And um, on that note, don't forget to tune in to our next LPD webinar titled Holistic Health and Fitness or H2F, Building Mental Readiness on May 19th at 11 a.m. General Hibbard will be joining us again along with a panel of experts on mental and human performance. And last, I want to thank everyone who tuned in today. The Army has really been focusing on having honest and open discussions across the force about these harmful behaviors that just don't support the core values. I encourage everyone to take some of these discussions back to your units and continue to have these tough but necessary conversations with your troops. And as always, remember, victory starts here.